The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 338. If somebody's used to making seventy thousand, they'll look for jobs that are paying sixty-five to seventy-five. If there's a job promoted that pays one hundred and thirty, and it's exactly describing what they do, they often don't even apply because they're already thinking, "Ah, they wouldn't see me as deserving the best." Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It is the podcast dedicated, of course, to your personal and professional growth. My name is Jeff, and I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is key. I've designed the podcast to not just help you narrow your reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable ideas from today's successful and inspiring authors. That author today is my friend Dan Miller, and we'll be diving into the 20th anniversary edition of Dan's book, 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love. Find it or create it. I'll be asking Dan to share about why so many of us don't recognize the opportunity we have to do the work we were made to do, what it looks like in practice to plan your work around your life and not the other way around, how to make the most of just 15 hours a week for building a business on the side, and lots more. If you've actually read previous editions of Dan's book, you'll be interested to know that some of the new updates include covering items like overcoming what he calls the upper limit challenge, the diminishing importance of college degrees, finding your unique zone of genius, artificial intelligence interviews, digital nomads, and other new work models and plenty of free guides and resources to go along with each of those. Be sure and hang around to the end of our conversation where Dan will be sharing with us how you can get a free chapter from the book and other free resources as well. Well, Dan Miller believes that meaningful work blends our natural skills and abilities, our unique personality traits, and our dreams and passions. And he believes that a clear sense of direction can help us become all that God designed us to be. In addition to writing several best-selling books, including the New York Times bestseller we're diving into today, he hosts a weekly podcast that is consistently ranked number one in careers on Apple Podcasts, and Dan is a frequent speaker at conferences around the world. Well, what else can I say about my friend Dan? He is here now for, I think this is the third visit on the Read to Lead podcast, but it has been over five years. Uh, Dan, it's a thrill to, to welcome you back to the show. Well, thanks. And in that, that kind of implies that you've been around a while doing your podcast. <laughs> so congratulations on that. But I'm always delighted to come back and have a conversation with you. Likewise, likewise. Did you ever think that you'd be celebrating the 20th anniversary edition of the book that started it all? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. I love well, it. There you go. You know, as you know, I'm one of these glass half full kind of guys. Yeah. I have big expectations. Yeah. I have a lot of positive expectations that seem to 
actually materialize. They come true. So I knew when I first came out that this was really going to be a core message of mine that I was going to maintain. The 20 years has passed in the blink of an eye. That's true. But uh, here we are, still in hardback, updated every five years. So I'm, I'm really honored by that, but thrilled to be able to continue sharing that message. Well, I understand you you did an, an interview recently with our mutual friend, Rory Vaden, and, and I want to steal one of the questions I know that, that he asked uh, you, and that is about maintaining a brand. You know, you started with this 48 Days brand and have been able to maintain that now for two decades. What has that process been like, and what have you learned from it all, You know, especially in light of the fact that you, know, you were kind of getting started before things like social media and all that existed? Yeah, absolutely. When I started, we didn't even have blogs, let alone podcasts, (laughs) Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, TikTok, and all those things. Didn't have all those, which a lot of people today think those are essential tools. You can't do a business without them. Well, sure you can. But you know, the continuing theme, Jeff, through all those years has been nurturing relationships. That's been the continuing theme. That's why the brand message can continue and why if Today, podcasts are popular. Sure, I can just reach out to friends like you and say, well, can we have a conversation about this? And it's readily there. But before that, I mean, I would go to little churches and speak there. I'd talk to chambers of commerce, to rotary clubs. My business was exploding before we had any of these social media tools that we have today. And thus, I don't feel very vulnerable if things go away. You know, if all of a sudden we don't have access, and I won't out any names that seem to be in jeopardy right now. But <laughs> if some of those things go away, I'm not concerned about that. We're still going to have effective ways to connect and collaborate and create. And so it's been in doing those that, but it's really nurturing relationships is the primary thing that has allowed me to maintain that brand. People share. I hope that I'm still accessible to people, mm. you know, and they share with people who, who they care about. And it's, it's continued in that way. Well, pretend someone's listening right now who, like me, has, has, has read past versions. And they're curious about this new one. What would you say is, is different about this one? How has it changed from previous versions of 48 Days to the Work You Love? Sure. Back in 2000, the first version, the core message in there is figure out how God has uniquely gifted you in terms of talents, passions, dreams, visions, and then how can you translate that into meaningful, productive, profitable work on Monday morning? That's the message. That has not changed. However, as we look around, what's changing in the workplace, it's pretty dramatic. You know, especially look at what's happened this year. All of a sudden, people are experiencing work models that we never would have dreamed of before. So about 30% of that core message, that message in the book is the same as it was back then. But about 70% has changed because the work models have changed so dramatically. So that's what's changed. Core message is the same. And again, that's been part of maintaining that brand, having one core message that stays the same. Why do you think, Dan, that, that more people don't recognize the opportunity that we all have, I think, to do work that we were, were really made to do? There's a lot of cultural bias against what you just described. Mm. We do what's practical, what's realistic. Yeah, you want to play your guitar, that's fine. But what are you <laughs> going to do to make money? You know, you want to be an artist, that's okay as a hobby. But what are you going to do that's practical and realistic? So we ignore a whole lot of opportunities that are out there, real opportunities, because they're not seen as practical. 
are realistic. We have, mm-hmm. as you know, in the approach to my office in Franklin, there's a beautiful eagle carved out of a cedar tree, a standing cedar tree. Lady came out and we topped the tree at about 14 feet up. She set up scaffolding, started with chainsaws and then went to chisels and released that beautiful eagle that was already there. There's so many metaphors in that. We don't have time to go into them. But <laughs> here's the deal. You are never going to sit down with a guidance counselor as a junior in high school or sophomore in college, and they say, gee, you ought to be a woodcarver. It's not going to happen. They're going to have traditional things, doctor, attorney, pharmacist, teacher, plumber, electrician. So we're going to have a very traditional list, a very short list, realistically, of things you can choose from. That just doesn't match the complexity of individuals out here. And so people have to be, they have to be trained to believe there are possibilities that fit their uniqueness. Academic systems don't do that. That has to come outside of that. Yeah. Where does that training begin? What, what are some, is that, is that, you know, finding the right books? Is it listening to the right podcasts? Is it that and other things? How would you, how would you describe that? It's having the right parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, what a privilege uh, to, to be able to nurture, you know, kids in that path when they, a path of discovery, when they have so many options. And there's a, there's a verse in Proverbs 22, 6, you know, train up a child the way you should go. We all know that verse. And we kind of assume that means, you know, just hammer them to think like we did. Mm. No. In the original translation, it means train up a child in the way that he or she is bent. Our challenge as teachers, educators, pastors, parents, is to figure out how is this child really uniquely wired, gifted, and help them develop in that, even if it seems to be contrary to what's realistic or practical. You know, I've got right above me here in my office a beautiful, beautiful painting done by a young man who came to me as a pastor, and he had had a dramatic experience in his own life and thought the best way he could serve God is to be a pastor. So he went to seminary, was ordained in his pastor of a little church. Well, they paid him peanuts, as is typical in a starting position like that, and he was miserable, but he was a pastor. The church actually sent him to see me we started unpacking this. And I mean, about 10 minutes into our conversation, I said, man, who sold you this bill of goods? <laughs> he was really taken back. You know, what could be more godly than being a pastor? I said, well, you're an imposter. You're trying to do something that doesn't fit you. You can't do it well when it doesn't fit you. Well, today he's an artist. Well, we know what we hear about artists. You can't make a living doing that. You know, artists starve, starving artists. Hmm. No, if that's how you are wired, how you're gifted, then your best opportunity for fulfillment and profitability is in doing that. And I'm confident he makes 10 times what he was making as a pastor. He hasn't walked away from any kind of calling. He walked into it because he didn't understand it to start with. It's that authenticity. I mean, I'm not an artist. I couldn't do what he does. But for him, that's where that blend of passion, talent, and money come together. Wow, what a cool thing. Mm. What if I'm someone who is not fortunate to have the right parents? What advice would you would you give me then? <laughs> put you on the spot there. Well, you know, it's not on the spot at all because, <laughs> frankly, I did not have parents that encouraged me to do mm. what I did. I had parents who were adamantly opposed to me finding my unique path. My dad was a farmer, and the expectation, the, the obligation of my, me was to go to school until I was 16 years old what the state required, and then help him on the farm. That was the only option given. My desire to learn more, to go more, be more, 
or have more was not in line with my parents' lifestyle or theology. So I did not get it there. But what I did do and what anybody can do is to reach out to people who will encourage you on that individual path. Initially, I had virtual mentors. You know, where I started listening to programs like with Zig Ziglar and Dennis Waitley and Norm Vincent Peale and Earl Nightingale, Napoleon Hill, all those old masters of achievement. Those are the ones who opened my eyes. Now, as time went on, then I was able to meet real life people as well. And some of those, incidentally, too, but real life people who were models of what I wanted to achieve. And they encouraged me, stretched me and allowed me to find my own way. A lot of that was done through books as well. But, you know, we can all, it's so easy to access the information to help guide us, to help us think bigger and to see outside the lines of what we may be doing now in today's environment. It's there. So even if it's not from parents or teachers or people who are well-meaning closest to you, and often people who are closest to you are the naysayers. They're the ones that say, ah, you can, nobody in this family's ever made $100,000. What makes you think you could do that? Mm. They're the ones pulling us back down. So we have to be real intentional about finding those people who will be our cheerleaders. And that kind of leads to my, my next question, because I think what you just said sort of bleeds into it a little bit. You unpack something in the book called the Upper Limit Challenge. Describe what, what that is and, and how we can get beyond it. The Upper Limit Challenge is a concept whereby we always have a sense of what we deserve. If I'm working with somebody who's looking for a traditional job, they usually give themselves about a $10,000 window. So if somebody's used to making $70,000, they'll look for jobs that are paying sixty-five to seventy-five. If there's a job promoted that pays 130 and it's exactly describing what they do, they often don't even apply because they're already thinking, uh, somehow there's a disconnect. They wouldn't see me as deserving of that. That's very, very typical. Here's another example of the upper limit challenge. We find some kid down in Mississippi living in abject poverty in the ghetto, but oh my gosh, this guy has a throwing arm like we've never seen. <laughs> We bring him to Nashville, Tennessee, sign him with the Tennessee Titans, give him a $10 million bonus. Six months later, this is often what happens. He spent the money and more. He's made poor decisions that have ruined his career. He's back where he came from because his sense of deserving did not match the reality of what he was given so quickly. Mm. Now, in today's work environment, this has real application because if you're working in a traditional job and you get a three or 4% increase every year, you can handle that. So you're making 70,000, next year you'll make 73,000, you can handle that. But if you get into like the information space, like you and I are in, and you put together a course, and all of a sudden on a weekend, you sell a course and bring in $100,000, you may 10 times your income in the course of a year. You have to be prepared emotionally and spiritually for that, or you'll sabotage it. And we see people do that all the time. They sabotage it. That's the upper limit challenge. You have to be prepared mentally to be a millionaire before you'll ever get there financially. Mm. It's, it, it's not just the athletes and the lottery winners. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We're all vulnerable to that if we don't recognize it and address it in advance. One of my favorite books from, I think I read it in 2017, was a book called The Big Leap. By, by Gay Hendricks, and he talks about something called the, the zone of genius, and, and you referenced that in your book and needing to find your unique zone of genius. What is that by your definition, and, and how do we begin figuring out what ours is? Yeah, absolutely, and, and in giving credit, Gay Hendricks is really the one that popularized the term the upper limit challenge as well in that same book, The Big Leap. But yeah, finding your zone of genius. I, I'm part of a program called Strategic Coach. 
out of Toronto, Canada. And in there, we're challenged to identify four areas of activity that we do. When I started out, I listed about 45 different things that I do. And then we had to categorize those in areas of incompetence. So I can sweep the floors or order paper clips. You know, I could do a lot of those things, but it's probably an area of incompetence. I don't do it very well. Areas of competence. So things we do okay. Areas of excellence. Maybe even things that we're known for. But even at that level, probably something that somebody else could step in and do. But what we're looking for is zone of genius. What is it that only you can do? What is it that you can really make a name for yourself in doing that? Now, a lot of us get trapped in those areas where we're excellent. We can maintain cash flow in that. But the challenge is, can we find that area of unique ability, your zone of genius? And I, I know what mine is. And when I started this process, I was spending about 20% of my time in my zone of genius. My goal is to get that to 75%. Now, for me, that's, that's my writing. I love writing. I love pulling books together. I got a couple new ones in the pipeline here, you know, things I'm more excited about than anything I've ever written up to this point. Mm. But that's not something I can delegate. I can't just have an assistant go in a room and turn out the next Dan Miller book. That's something I need to do. You know, you know that process, but that has to do with that zone of genius. And I want to spend more of my time doing that. If people figure that out, their zone of genius, it can transform their world. Hmm. I, I like having written more than I like writing. Ah, <laughs> you're one of those. Yeah, one of those. <laughs> um, uh, Dan, what does it look like in practice to to strive to plan our work around our life instead of the other way around, planning our life around our, our work? Again, with that, we kind of have to go against a cultural norm. Mm. The cultural norm is you graduate from college, as an example. You do a job search. Okay, you're living in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, but here's a job opportunity in Houston. Well, it's hot in Houston. You don't want to go there, but there's where the job is. People often do that. They then go there and then try to make their life work. That's an example of that. My encouragement is plan your life first. Decide where you want to live. Do you want seasonal changes? Do you want hot or cold? Do you want big and urban environment or do you want more in the country? I mean, you can be anywhere in the world. So really, literally in doing that, then design what is the work that you're going to do that allows you the lifestyle that you want. Now, in today's environment, where work models have been just dismantled in so many ways, it's <laughs> easier than ever to do that. But we still find people who feel trapped by virtue of their job, their work. Gee, I, there's a job opportunity and it's taking me to Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, I don't want to go there, but the job is there. You, there's just no reason for having to do that. Then if you were giving advice to someone, say, looking to build a business and they've only got, you know, 15 hours a week to spare and they're thinking, geez, I, I, I just don't know if that's enough. What, what advice would you give? Oh, I love that question. And, and so many people are doing that. They have a little spare time. They're still working a full time job, 40 hours, but we all have discretionary time. I mean, we have 168 hours a week and at 40, even if you sleep, then in addition, sleep eight hours a night, have some transportation time, time going to church, involving your community with your family. You still have discretionary time. 15 hours, you can really do something dramatic in a period of time as short as like 60, 90 days. But you have to have it dissected into four different areas. Mm. A lot of people, when they say they are going to start a business, six months later, they've read 20 books. 
They've gone to three conferences. They've listened to 70 podcasts. They've done all this stuff to increase their knowledge and they've never put a penny in the bank. Mm. You can't do that. With that, you may have a created a hobby, but certainly not a business. It's not a business until you generate money. So you have to divide between gathering knowledge, between creating content, working directly with clients or customers, and marketing. So my recommendation with those 15 hours is to use three hours only for increasing your knowledge. That's the default position for a lot of people. But they're just going to you know, watch 10 more YouTube videos. Well, you can't do that. If you have 15 hours, you have to divide it or you'll never have a real business. Three hours, gathering new knowledge. Five hours, creating content. If it's working on your new book, your course, or building birdhouses, whatever it is that you're doing, five hours there, four hours working directly with clients or customers. That's where money starts immediately. And then three hours on the marketing. What are you going to do to let people know about this wonderful thing that you've created? If you divide it in those four areas, you can use 15 hours a week and build very profitably a business in a very short period of time. Something that I've heard you talk about, and I'm curious to know if you still do, I assume you still do this, but at the end of the year, uh, you kind of evaluate all that you've been doing and you look for things to cut, things to stop doing. I think the figure was like 10%. 15. 15. Okay. Can, <laughs> can you talk a bit about that process, why you, why you looked for what you can cut before you jump into to the next year? Yeah, I, certainly. And I, I do that. I'm very rigorous about doing that. Mm. Because I don't want to get stuck in sameness. I don't want to get stuck in predictability, even if it appears to be successful. I want to always be growing and learning. And frankly, what I've found from my experience is that it's the things that I bring into that new 15% that turn out to be bigger adventures than I ever experienced before. You know, we, we talk about the value of building habits. We talk about, you know, 21 days, whatever. I heard recently it's 66 days, whatever. But anyway, we build habits. And some of those like, like running or spending 30 minutes a day in devotions or brushing your teeth or whatever, we certainly habits we want to build in. But if we get all of our life just built in predictable habits, then the question is, what room do we allow for those new adventures, mm. for new opportunities? Have we restricted our ability to even recognize those if they're available? Now, this year, a lot of people have had their routines totally dismantled. And so they've been forced to look at new things in new ways. I think it's actually healthy in some ways, and I don't want to diminish the the hardship that it's created for a lot of people. But for some people, it's been a real wake-up call that's going to open the door to more success, more fulfillment than they ever experienced. For me, I eliminate 15% of what I've been doing the previous year, and then that Mm -hmm. opens the door. Okay, what can I experiment with now in that 15%? I love your take on this year, too. It's more of that glass half full abundance versus scarcity uh, mindset. I know another habit you cultivated. I'm curious to know if you still cultivate. How much time each week, Dan, do you give yourself to just you know, sit for ideas, to just spend time thinking? Yeah, and, and I, I do that. If I scheduled every minute of every day, I'd have pretty predictable results. <laughs> but I love that. You know, Henry Ford used to talk about he didn't want people who were always just working for him. He wanted people who would sit for ideas. You know, Thomas Edison was known for going down to the, the river in the morning, throwing a fishing line out with a bobber, you know, and he'd be there for an hour or so. Didn't have any bait on his hook at all, but it was the process of sitting there thinking. Now, here, so here's how my schedule goes. Monday, I deal with everything addressing business needs. So meeting with my team, considering new software, new vendor relationships, whatever, that's all on Monday. 
Tuesday is a coaching day for me. Any coaching calls that I have, working with my mastermind, our coaching mastery students, that's all on Tuesday. Wednesday morning, I do my podcast. Wednesday afternoon, I'm available for interviews. The only time I'm available for interviews. Thursday and Friday, you look at my schedule, no appointments, no commitments, nothing. Thursday and Friday, those are what I designate deep work from Cal Newport's terminology, Mm. deep work. So they're unscheduled. Now, that doesn't mean I'm unproductive. That doesn't mean I'm just you know, twiddling my thumbs or gazing at my navel. But those are days when I, I read, I think, I write. That's when I'm creating new content. So manuscripts I'm working on, new courses, new seminars, those all happen on Thursday and Friday. There's a lot of just thinking time there. I mean, I may go for a walk or just go to a park somewhere or just go out on our lanai and just sit there. Just think. I value that. I don't see that as unproductive time at all. Now, my tendency is, and my wife will tell you this, you know, it's hard for me to just not think. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, wherever we are, I'm thinking about new ideas that I can put legs on. It's just how I'm wired. So it's hard for me to even turn that off. But I do have designated times for just sitting for ideas. Yes. Well, uh, I've had the chance to uh, to hear you speak a number of times and have always uh, gotten a great deal out of that. And as somebody who uh, does that regularly or did it regularly pre-COVID, maybe now more of your speaking gigs are, are virtual. Uh, what's a, a tip or two you uh, would be willing to pass along, Dan, for delivering a talk that's uh, really going to hit home with your audience and be memorable and impactful? Make sure you have a lot of energy. Even in an interview, there are a few things that are more appealing I mean, you could take a couple of degrees off your resume. If you have enough energy, it's going to overcome that. Mm. Certainly that is true in speaking. Be energetic. Engage with the audience right from the time you hit the edge of the stage. Don't even wait till you get to the center. You know, we walk out there blindly and then look up. Engage with them right from the, right from the start. Have a real clear core message and use stories. Mm. I, I'm not a natural storyteller. But I've found it's so helpful for people to remember a point if you wrap it around a story. So I include things about my wonderful experiences growing up as a poor farm kid, those kind of things, you know, building my first car. Those are things that people remember the principle attached to that more than if it just stands alone. So don't try to be too dry and theoretical. Engage with stories. Well, I think maybe over the last five years, since it's been that long since we've we've chatted for the show, a book or two in that uh, in that time frame that's come out that's impacted you greatly, maybe one that uh, you recommend a lot. There's a recent book titled Range. Mm. It kind of contrasts Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. Actually, David Goliath talked about you put in your 10,000 hours. So we kind of say, okay, unless you start playing a violin when you're three years old, you're never going to be very good. Range dismantles that totally. It profiles people like Roger Federer playing tennis, who he didn't settle in on that till he was like in his 20s. And it talks about the value of experimenting with a whole lot of different things before you really settle in. Okay. And it kind of dismantled the idea that unless you get to start really early and focus on one thing only, you're never going to be good. I love that. And having a bunch, I've got 17 grandkids. And I love that in working with my grandkids to recognize they can experiment with a lot of things. So that's been a really profound book. There's there's a new book uh, called Mentor to Millions by Mark Tim and Kevin Harrington. Kevin Harrington was one of the original mm-hmm. sharks on Shark Tank. 
that I really love. I've gotten copies for everybody, everybody in my mastermind, but it focuses on success in life, success in family, in addition to business. And Kevin Harrington has sold billions of dollars worth of products, late night commercials as seen on TV and all those kind of things he's known for. But he recognizes that unless you anticipate with eagerness driving into your driveway at night, as that being another highlight of success in your life, you're not really successful. Mm. Those are, oh, there's so many, Jeff. Oh my gosh. When you're, <laughs> you're in such a beautiful space and, and interviewing people week after week, there's so many books that really are profound. But I, I love these authors who turn out valuable content time after time. Well, uh, speaking of impactful books, 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love, I know you have a special offer for our listeners, Dan, a special uh, webpage you set up for them. Tell us about that. We do indeed. We've got a, a page set up just for your listeners. If they go to 48days.com slash RTL, read to lead, you'll see an opening chapter. There's a quiz there. It's 18 questions. I love it. It's beautiful. And help you assess how close are you to living your ideal life. And there's other bonuses there. Again, so it's 48days.com slash RTL. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming back and talking about the 20th anniversary edition of 48 Days. It's, it's always a treat to chat with you. Can I come back in five years when I have the new version out? <laughs> so you can come back before then if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am literally making notes or what'll be in the, the 2025 version. I update it every five years, and things are changing that rapidly after the craziness that's happened right now. We'll have some new sections in there. But thank you, Jeff. It's always an honor to come back and uh, have the informal chats with you. We've been friends, but I love having discussions around content like this as well. Don't forget to take Dan up on his offer, those special resources at 48days.com slash RTL. You can also find that link and links to other resources and books and whatnot that we discussed at the show notes page I've created just for this episode. That is always readtoleadpodcast.com slash and then the episode number, in this case, 338. readtoleadpodcast.com slash 338. If you enjoyed this episode, you want to talk about it, maybe you have questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback for me, I encourage you to write me at jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's also the best place to write if you're looking for consulting help or someone to speak at your next virtual or in-person event. One more time, that's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. In the coming weeks, you can look forward to Mark Victor Hansen, co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul. We'll be talking about his new book called Ask. We'll be hearing from my friend Carrie Oberbrunner as we discuss his book, Unhackable. And next week, we'll be welcoming Dr. Michelle Deering as we dig into the topic of race and relationships. It's all on the way right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Thank you.